Amen. Well, welcome, everybody. It's Pleasure to be in worship with you. If I haven't met you, if you're listening online or you're new, my name is Mike Lotzer. I'm the lead pastor here. Today we're starting a new sermon series called Unoffendable, and it is actually inspired by this book by a man named Brant Hansen. And, uh, you know, a few of our men's groups have gone through this material over the last few months, and I've heard from many of them that this was really a game changer for them. And isn't it true that we're in a culture and a cultural moment where it seems like everybody's level of offense is through the roof. I mean, has anybody noticed that? I'm offended that you haven't noticed that, no? Hey, who would like a copy of this book? Raise your hand, all right, come, come and get it, Josh. He, I saw him first, and uh, who, raise your hand, is offended that Josh beat you to the punch? All right, thank you, thank you. Carrie, Kathy, good honesty there. Well. We're going to be in math, or, uh, Ephesians, rather, chapter 4, 26 uh, and 27 and verse 31. The Apostle Paul uh, has some teaching that is really practical, and it comes right after a section in the letter where he is talking about putting off our old self, our sinful self, and putting on our new self, our Christ-like self. So there's some implied action that we can do. God helps us with that, but we are to put off our old self, put on our new self. And then he says this in verse 25 of chapter 4. I'm going to read a little more of the context. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So if we're going to be successful putting off our old self and putting on our new self, we have to tell the truth. And, you know, when we tell the truth... Conflict can happen. Offense can happen. It's like he anticipates that. So verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. So tell the truth, and that's probably going to generate some anger. And then he says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Why would he not want the sun to go down? In other words, there's a time to be angry, but then there's a time to let that go, to forgive, to move on. Don't stoke it. Don't let it spend the night. And then I want to skip all the way down to uh, 31. And this is the little bit that gets ignored. Because if you just read what we read, the implication would be something like, anger is really normal. You can be as angry as you want, but uh, don't overdo it. Don't let it spend the night. But then he goes on, and the context in 31 says this. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Get rid of it, he says. It's almost like the Apostle Paul is a realist in that he goes, you know, you're going to get angry. That's going to happen if we're a, a culture that tells the truth to each other in love. That will cause some offense. Don't hold on to it. In fact, get rid of it. Get rid of it, and don't let it turn into contempt where you really start to justify some ugly behavior to people or a certain group of people because you have stoked your anger. If you're taking notes, the first thing I'd like us to notice is this. Being easily offended and angry is foolish. It's foolish, my friends. The wisdom literature contains multiple books of the Bible, the Old Testament, that uh, teach us how to navigate the complexities of life, how to be wise and honor God. And one of the ways the wisdom literature does this is they have an archetype fool, the fool, the metaphorical fool. They're always talking about the fool does this, the wise person does this. Ecclesiastes 7, 9 
puts it this way, do not be eager in your spirit to be angry, for anger resides in the heart of fools. Don't be eager. I've been there. Have you guys ever been convicted? And said, man, I'm just eager to be offended and angry. It's almost like a sport in our culture. You just look on the horizon for something that somebody puts on social media that you don't like, or you just look through the protocol of an interaction or a friendship and, hey, how dare you? But he says, through his word in the wisdom literature, if you're eager in your spirit to be angry and you let anger reside in your heart, you're a fool. You're acting foolishly. And in the wisdom literature, you don't want to be a fool. It leads to destruction. The way of fool leads to self-destruction and the destruction of all that's good and worthwhile, the destruction of others. Proverbs, also in the wisdom literature, Proverbs 14, 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. Think about how practical that is, Mercy wrote. When we discipline ourselves to not quickly become enraged, we have a clear mind that can think. Have you ever been in an argument and you could simultaneously tell you were making no sense and you were kind of twisting the facts and insisting stubbornly on your position even though you knew it was wrong, but you couldn't help it because you were so angry. Your anger was clouding your judgment. And if you can't relate to that, surely you've been on the other side of that. When someone is so angry, you can tell in their heart of hearts they don't even believe in what they're saying. They just need to be right because they're so angry. If we become people who are like Jesus, who are slow to anger, we will gain great understanding. But he or she who has a hasty temper exalts folly. I had a friend who was a ER doc in the army, and he said, you wouldn't believe how many stupid injuries come into the ER chaplain because people get mad at inanimate objects and they hurt their bodies. Like broken toes abound, kicking things. Now that was an infantry unit and kind of a physical group of, of people. But I've been there. I've told my exploits of the garden hose that darn garden hose, it always gets kinked at the wrong spot or it gets stuck in your car tire and the driveway, you just start grabbing it and wrestling with it as if it has a, a, a real intent to hurt you. It exalts folly. You know, a third reason that, that, that isn't explicitly spelled out in scripture, but it, it, it surely is one we all agree with and experience for foolishness, exhaustion. Isn't it exhausting? Isn't it tiring and wearisome? when you get in a cycle or a pattern where you're always offended? One of the real practical benefits of following God's instruction with regard to anger and becoming slow to anger and to rid yourself of anger and not live a life that's constantly being outraged and offended is you will see your weariness dissipate and energy, newfound energy will replace it. Some of you are exhausted in part because you have become addicted to becoming angry. You've become addicted to constantly being offended. And I have had seasons in my life, and to be honest, in 2020, where I was in this boat. You know, one of the more painful things to do as a minister, Chad and I were talking about this, is when you 
have to preach on a subject that you feel like you're living hypocritically about. And honestly, preparing for this series has really been rough for me because, I mean, we've been in an election year and everybody has different opinions on COVID-19 and what's right and what's safe and what's overboard or not, not safe enough. And, and it's like we're living in this perfect storm to grow a spirit of offense. And I've indulged in that at times. Anyone else want to admit that? So don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not the pro telling you how to do it. I'm somebody who has struggled with a spirit of offense towards others, saying that we need to grow together. It is foolish to be a person who is easily offended and angry. But it is understandable. Let's just go through a few types of uh, offenses. Maybe for you, you are somebody who really has strong opinions about how things ought to be done, and you get so offended. He didn't do it right. That is not how you load a dishwasher, right? Or maybe for you, you're always giving, you're always serving other people, and, and they're depending on you, and all of a sudden, you just explode with a sense of offense. Nobody appreciates me around here. Look what I do. And they don't appreciate me. I am so offended. Or how about this one? Maybe for you, you, you feel like you do a good job at work and, and somebody says, you know, I, I really think you need to work on this. And even though there's some truth in that and it's constructive criticism, even if it's brought in the right tone, what rises up in you? How dare you criticize me? I've been doing this for years. I know how to do this well. How dare you point that out? Pastor Chad, next week, will really dial in on this sense of judgmentalism, judging others before we look critically at ourselves. But maybe that's your deal, your spirit of fence that leads you into foolishness always centers around with this deep inability to be judged by anyone else. If you ever feel judged, you feel justified immediately to lash out. And isn't that part of why it is so foolish? When we let this spirit of offense take over, it, it justifies some really bad behavior that we know is wrong, but we think in our mind, in our anger, I get to talk to this person this way, because I'm offended. Friends, it's foolish, but it's not just foolish. Being easily offended and angry is also fruitless. If you're taking notes, it is not just foolish, it is fruitless. You know, as Christians, we're told to live fruitful lives, to produce fruits of the Spirit, to produce fruit of righteousness. You should, over time, evidence fruit, like your character is starting to evolve and change into the character of Jesus Christ, become a more loving person. That would be fruitfulness. Share Jesus in word and in example with others and persuade other people about how good Jesus is and how much he loves them. That would be fruit. But when we become easily offended and angry, our witness, our life, our ministry becomes fruitless. 
Think about why that would be the case. Jesus once taught his people who were living as Jewish um, exiles to some extent under the oppression of the Roman government. He said, you know that rule about how a Roman soldier can ask you to carry their gear for you, but they can only demand that you do that for a mile? Rather than being offended, why don't you just next time that happens, carry it two miles, go the extra mile. That's where that phrase comes from. How hard is it to do that, to obey Jesus with that command if you're allowing yourself the right to be offended? Now, now that was an interesting example that he picked because that was exploitation of a weaker people group. That was wrong. Rome shouldn't have given the Jewish people back problems by making them carry their very heavy 75-pound pack, not even a mile. That's cruel, and it's not right. And Jesus says, even when something is clearly wrong and you have a right to be offended, I want the love in your heart to be so radically transforming to the culture around you that you would be willing to carry it a second mile, to turn the other cheek. But you can't do that when you let anger spend the night. Here's another way to think about why being easily offended and angry is so fruitless, why it doesn't produce the results we want. Part of our call in life is to persuade other people to change, to repent, to turn away from a life where they are their own personal God and to submit to the God who made them. And we do that by example, but we do that by asking them and persuading them. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been persuaded to change anything about your driving from another driver who was honking the horn at you? I have yet to meet any human being, no matter how nice, who enjoys being honked at. I mean, think of the last time somebody really laid on the horn. Maybe it was your spouse on the way to church because you were taking too long and he or she just Did that make you feel in that moment compelled? to be more orderly? For for some of you, that, that just made you feel a little offended and then you got a little more offended and you actually took two or three more minutes to get in the car. When people get honked at, in general, it does not produce the type of cooperation that we are looking for. And, and that's just the practical reality of offense. 1 Corinthians 13 That wonderful passage read at weddings says, love is not easily provoked. It holds no record of wrong. And if we're called to be the physical embodiment of the love of God, how in the world can we do that when we're angry? When we allow ourselves to continually live in a state of anger. Now, now here's, here's something that we need to get straight. What Jesus and Paul commenting on the teaching of Christ is not saying is that you should never feel the emotion of anger. Some of you grew up in homes where it was illegal to be angry. And psychologists, worth their stripes, will tell you that causes all kinds of problems, right? Because you're constantly repressing your feelings and you start to develop shame around the feeling of being angry. I mean, anger itself is, is like physical pain is to the body. It's the emotional pain that should alert us that something is not right here. And, and, and to the degree anger could be righteous, it would be our reaction to 
injustice to things that we know are not right. But here's the problem. We're not very good at wielding the weapon of anger. And you know it's true if you look at your own life. A lot of Christians will say, well, didn't Jesus get angry? I mean, the guy put a, a braided whip together on the fly, and he went into the temple with the money changers who were making kind of a carnival out of, out of a house of prayer, and he flipped over the tables, and he started whipping these hypocrites. And so doesn't that give me the right to flip a few tables and whip a few people when I'm on the right side of the issue? No, it doesn't, because you're not that good at flipping tables, and you're not that good at whipping the hypocrisy out of people, and neither am I. This should not philosophically stun us, this idea that God and Christ, who is the visible image of the invisible God, can do certain things that we cannot do, is better at certain things than we are. We are people who are sinful and broken by sin on this side of eternity. We're growing, but it's as if Scripture is saying, don't try it. You'll become a fool and it'll be fruitless. I think part of the reason it's so fruitless and we're not good at using anger in a constructive way is because of the retaliatory nature of anger. I mean, there have been times in my life when somebody called me out on behavior that I knew was wrong or a position that I knew was not factual or something like that. Deep down, I kind of knew it. But they did it in a way where they came in pretty hot. And I, I could just see in their tone and their facial expression and their waving arms and stuff like that, this imminent desire to do me harm. That's, what, that's how it feels when someone's really angry at you. And so even though they were right, I found that the natural response was for me to dig my heels in and to not concede an inch. Because when somebody honks at you, the overwhelming tendency is to honk back, isn't it? But a calm, measured, loving response, a demeanor that really doesn't just pretend to look loving but is loving comes from a place of, I love you so much, I want God's best for you, and so this is why I feel like you're, you're not thinking correctly about this. That has a different effect on us. It really does. If I know you're in my corner and you want what's best for me and you're not coming in a spirit of offense and anger, I am so much more likely to accept your wisdom or your advice, and you are too. When we bring our quote-unquote righteous anger into the mix, it starts an arm war, an arms war of retaliatory offense and anger, and we lose the point. It's almost like the facts don't matter anymore. It just becomes all about my feelings of entitlement to anger. Dallas Willard, a profound theologian, said, there is nothing that can be done with anger that cannot be done better without it. There's nothing in your life that you will be able to do better with anger than with love. Think about that, parents. There is no parenting moment where stoking the anger and coming on 
with just a lot of rage and offense and I'm bigger than you, quiet. There's no parenting moment that in the long run can be done better with that type of anger than with love. You see, love forces us to take a breath and to access that part of our brain that can measure reality. Love considers that apart from the grace of God, we too could be doing the very same thing. Some of you know, recently somebody stole our church van. We had a, a key, key box outside with the key in for our volunteer drivers. We probably shouldn't have done that, but um, that was just, we just never really thought anyone would steal the key box and, and thus steal the, the van, but they did. And it was so interesting because the first response that rose up in me was just, oh, a spirit of offense. And in an earthly sense, I have a right to that, right? I mean, I was the one that had to go buy it, and car shopping's a very strange version of purgatory. I mean, it's just not a fun experience, right? And, and it was only six weeks old off the lot. It was a used van, but it was a nice caravan, and it's like, who steals a church van? Come on. And I started to see what was happening in me, the sense of outrage, the sense of, I kind of want to let this anger not pass, but move in. And maybe not move in, but maybe just stay a night or two. And I let it stay a night or two. And that morning, and that morning that I woke up, I found it was on my mind. And my mind wasn't going to, thank you, God, for the opportunity to live another day to serve you. It was going to, who steals a church van? Our staff spent some time deliberately praying for the person or persons who took the van. And I found that when I went to buy the replacement van and the insurance replaced it, and it was actually an upgrade, we got a 2019 instead of a 2018, and it worked out okay. But as I was muddling through the, the insurance process and not enjoying those details, I just kept trying to remind my heart, you know, this person is made in the image of God. Was it wrong that they stole it? Absolutely, but I have no idea. Mike, you have no idea what they've gone through. It's not justifying the theft. It's just reminding you would be capable of stealing a church van. And so would everyone who goes to Mercy Road Church. It's not as if there's good people and there's bad people in this world. There's just people broken by sin. And we are capable of great holiness and beauty and self-sacrifice, and we're capable of incredible selfishness and self-justification. We can choose to become unoffendable, my friends. That's the scandalous point of this series. It's a choice. You're not a slave to your spirit of offense, you and I can choose with God's help to just become people and think about it. Imagine if Christians were just known as the most unoffendable people on the planet. It's not that they don't have their convictions and stand up for what's right. It's not that they won't speak up against injustice, but when they do, it's always in love. It's always measured. It's much more effective. And they are not easily angered and they don't hold on to that anger and they're so good at forgiving. The author of the book that, that inspired this said that he used to just hate traffic. He lives in California, and it's like an hour in traffic every day. 
And he said, but when I realized I could become an unoffendable person if I just look at traffic as an hour every day on the way to work and on the way back to practice forgiveness, it changed everything. Now traffic is just practice forgiveness time. It's a different way to look at that, isn't it? So how do we choose to become unoffendable? I think the way we do it is we, we give up our right to be offended. I'm using that language very intentional because there will be things that are said to you, done to you, happened to you, where from a very earthly, logical perspective, you have every right to be offended. People will be thoughtless and cruel and small-minded. They will intentionally try to get under your skin and sometimes be so self-absorbed that they get under your skin without even thinking or trying. And in those moments, sure, you have a right to be offended, but Christians are people who follow Christ onto the cross. What do I mean by that? Well, when Jesus voluntarily got on the cross, he did so, and he died for our sins so that we could be with him forever if we accept that. That is the gospel. And we don't need to die on a literal cross. That's already happened once and for all for everybody. We don't need to earn our way into heaven. It's a free gift, a costly gift. But Jesus did say, pick up your cross and follow me. Like, I'm going to die on the real one to make the relationship that is shattered between God and human beings right. And now you're going to pick up a thousand metaphorical crosses. And that will be how you grow into a person whose character looks like mine. Giving up something you have a right to voluntarily out of love is the definition of picking up your cross. And that is how it is possible to choose to become an unoffendable person. We must still speak up when needed, but not with anger and contempt. We must address injustice, but not with anger and contempt, because when we speak and when we act, we will do so having first given up our right to be offended. We will do so by telling the anger within us that it does not have the right to spend the night. Friends, I think this series could change your life, and it could change mine. And I don't say that about every sermon series. It's just so important. It's such a countercultural invitation. I was, I'll close with this. I was watching a, a speaker online talk about uh, the need to think about God more throughout the day. And he said he set his watch to ping, vibrate every six minutes. And that would just remind him throughout his day to check in with God and just say, Lord, I invite you into my life. Correct my thinking or whatever. And I thought, wow, that would be an interesting thing to do. Maybe I should try that. Then I was preparing this message and, and I thought, you know, I think we all already have a watch. If we just invited God into our thinking every time we feel offended, put off, annoyed, outraged, for some of us, you would get a ping that would come a lot more frequent than every six minutes, wouldn't you? For all of us, there would be multiple pings a day. My prayer in this series and over the next few weeks is that we grow into men and women who are truly unoffendable. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, this is totally impossible 
without your help. And so we pray that you would help us. First, would you convict us? And I know that's not fun. You've convicted me this week. And having brought before our minds the areas where we have given offense and anger, the run of the house, the ability to stay overnight, now would you forgive us? And thank you that you have forgiven us for every past, present sin imaginable. Lord, would you continue to cast a vision of what life might be like, what it could be like, what it should be like if we were to live as people who were unoffendable, who are known for our love and our forgiveness, our truth-telling, but our truth-telling in love and in wisdom. Help us do this through the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.